This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Seasons, 22 Poems from My Heart, Volume 1. And the poet is Nushan Shekarabi. And Nushan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nushan. Hello, how are you? Well, let's first talk about why you put together this book of poetry. What motivated you? I mean, it's not, I mean, here you are, a political scientist <laughs> teaching in a, you know, in, a, in a college there in Southern California. What prompted you to write a book of poetry? Um, it was purely accidental. I had no intention of writing a book on poetry at all. I, I've been writing poetry sort of in secret for a number of years, um, kind of almost as journal entries um, in private. And um, a friend of mine, sort of got a hold of this um, entry, this journal entry, and we kind of had a discussion. She liked the poems, and she kind of began to encourage me to think about um, publishing them. But it's a completely unintentional piece of work. It was never meant to even see the light of day. So um, it just came about um, really through a conversation with a friend and encouragement from her to to get these um, published. Well, you wrote, too, that, you know, you just mentioned in secret, but you also have written about your work that you were afraid of exposing yourself to criticism or judgment of others. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, because the, uh, the poetry is, it, it, because it is so personal, the topics are so personal, some of them, some different, you know, very difficult topics, um, you know, kind of exposing a part of yourself that you consider very private, um, the thought of that. Um, you know, being exposed publicly, um, it did carry with it, I think, normal insecurities and fears and that what are people going to think and um, how will they judge me and how will they view me. And so I did, I did struggle with that for a while. And my first instinct was absolutely not. These are private thoughts and um, I don't want to share them and nobody would be interested anyway. So I think I did um, initially have a negative reaction to the, to the potential of the publication, definitely. But I've definitely changed my mind as well. So. <laughs> and how did you let go of those fears? Um, I think I let go of them uh, once I um, decided to um, look at the poems from an outsider's perspective, almost temporarily detach myself from um, from the poems in a sense and saying, okay, well, if I, if I was reading these, what would I think of them just from an aesthetic perspective or just from an intellectual perspective? Um, you know, what would somebody take away from it? And I, when I began to reread some of my older poems and then a few that were written in Farsi or in my native tongue, which is Persian, I began to translate them, and I saw that some of the points would be conveyed actually more beautifully in English. And then I thought, you know, maybe it is worth thinking about this. And um, I think just emotionally I was at a place in my life where I, I had more confidence than I did when I was in my 20s, and I've been through some experiences in the last maybe four to five years that um, I hope helped me to be a little bit wiser and a little bit more confident. And I thought, you know what, I think, I think I'm going to let it go and, and see what happens. And the response was very, very positive from family and friends and colleagues, and I think they kind of gave me the confidence that I lacked. Um, but I just sort of decided to let go at some point, that, you know, let's just liberate myself from whatever it is that's confining me. Um, 
So I had to detach myself a little bit and look at it from an outsider and not look at it as the author of these poems. And that helped me to let go. Now, do we f- have any kind of uh, political poetry, or is it mainly just focused on the human experience? Um, the poems in this particular volume are predominantly personal poems on the human experience, but there are some political pieces. Um, uh, there's a piece on domestic violence. Um, there is a piece on um, suicide bombers in Palestine. Um, there are different topics. The, the second volume that I'm working on, there will probably be a few more uh, pieces relating to uh, political issues, um, just done in a very non-scholarly, non-academic way, which is away from my teaching, but more of a emotional look at some political issues. So I, I hope to do more of those, and, and with a lot of the events that are going on around the world, especially in Iran, which is my birth country, I think um, that has inspired me to write a lot more poems and related to that issue, and I have some work in progress in relationship to that. So, Well, let's, uh, let's focus on a few of, of these poetic experiences, uh, and which one, let's start with uh, some of your favorites. Uh, What would you like to start with? What's the Um, name of the uh, poem that you'd like to share with us? uh, My favorite um, in in this one is the the poem that the book is named after, and um, that's the poem Seasons, and it's on pages 10 and 11 in, uh, in volume one. Um, that's one of my favorite pieces. It's it's a relatively long piece, so um, I'll probably just read you know one section of it. But um, it, it is my favorite piece. It was a, a very emotionally driven piece, and it's written about someone that I I, I cared about great, greatly, and I still do. And so it really kind of um, was uh, one of the focal points, kind of the common thread, um, the encouragement that kind of got me through this um, through this particular volume. So seasons would be my favorite. Well, please share it with us. Um, so this is just the first section, uh, page 10 and 11, season. Um, These are the days when the sun is angry. She won't warm my olive skin, and the dark clouds are victorious. These are the days when my cheekbones are moist with tears. They drench my face and rock me to sleep. These are the days when I miss you in an incomprehensible way. The void of your being makes my heart ache. These are the nights when I mourn the love you never felt for me the love you had preserved for another time with another. These are the nights when you are warm and content in her bed, a bed filled with memories and comfort of knowing. These are the nights when I drive to the beach looking for my swimmer, the swimmer I watch as he drifts away from my sight, unresponsive to my pleas. Well, that's very emotional, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Now, now, when you do that, when you, how does that happen? How do you, you create that kind of feeling of remorse? I mean, we're, I mean, obviously it's coming from deep within you, but does it just kind of flow, or do you have to work at it? Or um, you know, it depends. Um, Seasons was um, definitely a work in progress. This this poem um, probably took me over a two month period to write. You, I usually just start down, start with um, jotting down. Excuse me, just thoughts that come into my mind, and um, sometimes they come to me when I'm driving, sometimes it could be late at night, um, something will come up and I'll just jot it down on a piece of paper. So this took a couple of months, I think because of where I was emotionally at the time, really trying to gather my feelings and try to make sense of many different emotions that I was going through. But there are other pieces that um, I've written in an hour. Um, there's been something that I've been very angry about or very remorseful about or something that I was quite actually happy about, and they come to me um, more easily that way. But it just depends. I mean, each poem, um, you know, invokes something very differently in you, and you express it differently. I do have a, uh, 
a habit I've noticed of, of rewriting poems over and over again. I don't think I've ever sat down or wrote something in one shot. I think I've had many, many revisions until I was satisfied with the end product. So um, maybe that's just the perfectionist in me, which probably isn't good. But um, nevertheless, it, it is a labor of love in most cases. So. It's, <laughs> called, it's called the Ernest Hemingway Syndrome. Yeah, yes, I've heard that. Yeah. Where he wrote, rewrote his book something like thirty times. Yes, yes, I've definitely heard that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, sure if I'm not definitely not as sophisticated as he was, but yeah, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. So, so what would you like to share with us next? Um, another one um, that I feel is an important poem. Um, is is again the poem that I um, that I wrote about um, just the chaos and and the um, the tragedy of, of suicide bombing and having related to the Palestinian Israeli crisis and in my classes um, especially in my international relations classes you know we cover the Middle East and um, the tumultuous nature of the politics there and everything that's kind of happened but I um, was inspired I, a couple of years ago to just write a poem just having to do with um, just the human experience, the tragedy of, of someone who actually chooses to take their life for, for a cause. And um, so I, I like the poem Pain, uh, which is on page 19 in my book, and um, that one is in reference to um, of the tragedy of, of suicide bombing. So that would be another piece that, uh, that is one of my favorites. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I'll go ahead and, use, and read this entire thing. It's not very long. Um, again, the poem is called Pain on page 19. He is used to the scars, the screeching noises of the night, the wailing of the mothers. He is comfortable with having no home, with the checkpoint, the dirty looks of the soldiers. He is professing his bleak tomorrows, embracing his demise, trusting his misfortune. He's known pain for some time now. Pain is an, is an uninvited guest. It will never leave. He is cursing at God today, wondering why he has abandoned him, begging for a quiet afternoon. He is deciding how to conceptualize his anger, to numb himself from feeling, to allow the tears to shed. He is constructing a letter to his first love, proposing to view him in heaven, to marry another. He's welcomed pain for some time now. Pain is a true friend. It will remain here. He is strapped with dynamite, shaking inside, anxious with pride. He is ascending to heaven, smiling like a fool, enlightened by his promise. He is giving into the pain, accepting the pain sacrificing his soul. Pain, Palestine. Pain, Palestine. He has pain. He has Palestine. He has gone. <laughs> it's hard to imagine why anyone would go to that, that extreme where they would just blow themselves up. That's, mm -hmm. It's hard to comprehend mm -hmm. when everything within us says live. Right. So right. there has to be Absolutely. incredible pain, to, to, mm -hmm. I guess, to do that. And, and a sense of hopelessness and right. an absolute desperation uh, where this is your only cry and your only method of, of uh, rebellion. Which and is your, your only message of communication, I guess. You yes, know, you're trying absolutely. to make a statement. And, absolutely. And you, absolutely. And you do. You make an incredible statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's just a tragedy of, of what we see in, in so many conflicts around the world. Again, whether it's we see the protests and demonstrations in Iran right now, or we see the chaos in Africa, and whether you're looking at the Congo or Sudan, or um, it's just this, this tragedy that um, we seem not to be able to escape, and the loss of life, and, and you know the cost of freedom. So it's it's something that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, and I think in the future um, I will have more poems that um, look at that experience, look at the tragedy of, of some of the events that have taken place that are I think we should all be aware of. So. <laughs> well, pick out another one. Ah, oh, let's see. Um, gosh, I have 
you know, again, I feel like I'm, I'm being selfish here, but I, um, I have a, a, another poem that, that, that I do like. It's on page 30, um, and it's called Gratitude. And, and this poem was written um, when I was quite a bit younger. I, I wrote this actually in spring of 1996, um, you know, after a, a brief relationship I had with someone ended. And it, it's actually really just a um, kind of thank you to this person for, for, you know, making an impression in my life. And it's called Gratitude, um, again, on page 30. I want to extend my gratitude for your kindness to me, for sitting next to me while we studied dance, for your efforts to impress me by learning to say I love you in Farsi, for your relaxed shoulders designed only for my massages at the beach. I want to tell you how much I appreciate your attention to me, for studying my face before each passionate kiss, for saying you love to hear my voice before you drift off to sleep, for painting me a colorful village at Christmas time. I want to say thank you for our time together, for the secret place we shared our most intimate moments at, for the letter you wrote ending with the phrase, words cannot express the depth of my feelings for you, for the sweet memories and images, my heart will always dance you. Well, that sums up a lot of feelings that people have with (laughs) close, intimate friends, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well done. Very well done. Thank you. Let's see. Here's a here's a, a, a rather, uh, if I may, choose one. Sure, of course. Uh, in the age of injustice, now this is uh, as yes. you you say here to describe it. This is a poem examining the devastating psychological impact of domestic violence on women. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes. You have that one. I do have it. Would you like me to read that one? Please. Okay. Um, In the Age of Injustice, on page 28. In the age of injustice, she has learned to keep her head down. She cooks, cleans, mends, irons, and sings lullabies. She pretends to be content, swallows her pride, and cries in private. In the Age of Injustice, she will be a prisoner of misguided tradition. She will be blamed, ridiculed, raped, beaten, and forgotten. She is an expert of maintaining silence, lying to protect, and preserving her family. In the age of injustice, she is a burden no government wants to take on. She is an economic dilemma and a major and a minor issue for politicians to discuss. She is a victim of her own choices and the product of her unhealthy environment. In the age of injustice, she will gladly terminate her agonizing life. She will smile as she swallows the pills one by one hoping to drift off before she is found. She will be discovered by her oppressors and damned to hell for her weak heart. Did you ever see that when you were growing up in Iran? Um, I personally haven't seen it, but I know of a lot of stories where that has taken place. And um, with the events of the last few weeks with the, with the protesters and the women, the Iranian women being in the forefront of the protest, and when you see the paramilitary groups out in the streets and and beating women and taking them in and and the shooting of the young woman, Neda Sultan. Um, um, I sort of thought back to this poem and thought, well, you know, this kind of injustice, whether it's a man abusing his wife at home or you see um, some sort of, you know, government officer, you know, um, showing their abuse against someone who's fighting for democracy is really the same thing. The damage is the same. And in the sense that women do sort of end up um, becoming the greatest victims of these kinds of struggles, whether the struggles in their home or in the streets. And I thought, you know, in this day and age, you would think that we're kind of past this and that um, we shouldn't have to 
have any woman go through this kind of tragedy, no matter what place of the world we are looking at. But but I thought to myself that there is still, with all the progression that we've made in this world to try to have some sort of gender equality and some sort of value for the place of women in family, in in um, an educational setting, and employment, we still see such um, rapid injustice and just some just some atrocities against women. And it really kind of you know made me quite sad. Um, Again, I, I was lucky enough um, not to be a victim of this, and I, and I don't have any close family or friends that, um, that I know of that have been through something like this, but there certainly have been many, many true stories of what women that have encountered this either in their homes or, um, you know, in other places in their lives, other events and points in their lives. So um, it's just a reality, I think, that's, that's out there. I wish it wasn't, but it is there. So. so this is the first volume. How many volumes do you think you'll write? Um, I'm hoping for at least two more. Um, I have a lot of poems, like I said, that I'm working on. Um, I have some other poems that I didn't feature in this volume that I would hope to feature in this, um, to have featured in the in the next um, one or two. But I would like to do three. I think that would be a nice um, trilogy of sorts, if you wish, and um, see what the response is. We'll see how the response is to this one first, and and go from there. So I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the future, doing more of this. So how do we get your book? Um, you can get my book on barnesandnoble.com. Um, I also have um, a website that um, iUniverse has been kind enough to set up for me uh, where there's information about me and the book. And um, I actually have some new poems that I'm working on featured on the website. And um, the website is um, uh, http semicolon dash dash 139492.myauthorsbite.com. But again, if you uh, just Google my first and last name or if you go to barnesandnoble.com, you're able to get the book. And I believe it's also available on Amazon. Thank you. Nushan, we really appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. That was Nushan Shekarabi. She is the poet of her new book, Seasons, 22 Poems from My Heart, Volume 1. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Ever wondered how you can make a difference in someone's life when you don't have a lot of time or money to give? Well, the East Texas Crisis Center and Tyler Ford have partnered in a way that helps everyone. For just $10, you can win a limited edition autographed Shelby GT Mustang that has been donated to the Crisis Center by Tyler Ford. All the money stays right here in East Texas and helps victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. To get your ticket, call 903-579-2500. That's 903-579-2500. Saturdays on Toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, 
mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Keeping the Promise, One Charter School's Experience. And the author is Dr. Samuel Yigzal, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Samuel. Hello, Steve. Well, this is a obviously a passionate part of your life, a great mission of your life, this charter school idea and the fulfillment of a lot of work through many years. So why did you feel you needed to take all this and put it on paper and share it with everybody? Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for the opportunity, Steve. Uh, my reason, my reason is uh, to share the experience. First of all, I believe in the idea that uh, choice makes public education better. Uh, the traditional public schools have done well for many of their students. Uh, they haven't done that well for some. And those who haven't uh, been able uh, to get a good service from traditional public schools ought to get choice. There have to be options for them. And charter schools offer that option. And because of my belief that charter schools would offer the option for children who are underserved in the traditional public schools, uh, I am involved in the movement. And uh, I wrote the book, uh, one, to advocate for that belief, uh, the belief that choice is uh, important, Choice is necessary, and choice would make things better for uh, children. And uh, the second reason is, uh, as you know, uh, we have been in this business for 10 years. Uh, it's a lot of experience. And when we started, there weren't that many charter schools. Uh, there wasn't much uh, knowledge about you know, how to start a charter school, how to grow it, and what to expect You know, as you... Uh, develop a school, the challenges, the obstacles. Uh, we started without uh, such knowledge and uh, from experience, uh, from what we had to go through, we have learned a lot. And making that information available, you know, our knowledge of the process uh, and what is involved in the process, it would make it easier for those who are uh, interested in developing one. And also for people uh, who are at the decision-making uh, positions, you know, uh, what is involved, what can be expected, and how can it be better. Uh, it has to be documented. Uh, the road that is traveled uh, has informed us a lot, uh, and 
people who are going to travel this road again should not start from scratch. There is knowledge already gained from experience, and that has to be shared. It's that idea you know, that motivated me to write the, the book. What's the difference between the charter school and the regular public school? Uh, let me first say that we are both public schools. But uh, one difference is that we are mission-driven. You know, charter schools are mission-driven. Uh, I know traditional public schools are also mission-driven, but the emphasis, the emphasis that is placed on the mission uh, is uh, very strong in the case of charter schools. Uh, we have a specific focus, we have specific purpose, and we are held accountable to staying true to that mission. Um, even though traditional public schools have mission and purpose, uh, you know, honestly, uh, they haven't uh, been held accountable to that. Uh, but in the case of a charter school, the accountability, accountability towards staying true to your mission is very high. Parents hold you accountable to that uh, because parents come to you by choice. You know, and choice is another difference between a traditional public school and uh, a charter school. You know, people choose us. How do people choose us? First, by looking at our mission, and then uh, they decide to stay with us if we stay true to our mission. When you say mission, do you mean a specialization? Uh, it's like the purpose, what we try to achieve. You know, our uh, bigger, I mean, the, the greater goal you know, the overall, you know, the over, uh, I mean, uh, the overarching uh, objective of the school. Uh, that's what I mean by mission. So choice is one uh, thing that makes charter schools different from traditional public schools. Now, yes, yes, Steve. Now, your book focuses on your school that you've been involved with, I guess, from the start, the Higher Ground Academy Charter School. Yes. And so you use that as the example because you were there when it started? Because I was there when it started. Actually, uh, my involvement with the school, you know, that's uh, to, uh, the, uh, back to the inception days. You know, I was a part of it when it was planned and uh, then uh, developed. You know, we turned in application to the Department of Education, Minnesota Department of Education, of course, and then we got approved, and then we developed it, and then we started it, and then we grew it. So, yes, my experience uh, is based on uh, the work that I have done with this school and in this school. Uh, but as you know, my background is in education. So I spoke in uh, general sense you know, about education in, in the book, uh, but I also used the higher ground experience uh, as a specific example. So how did you first recruit students, recruit families, convince families that the Higher Ground Academy was just right for their child? That's a very good question. We had to do it by going door to door, by going to uh, community events, the church, the uh, mosque, and, the, you know, whatever people gather, yeah, we met ourselves uh, available, uh, uh, but the key strategy was going door to door. You know, in the neighborhood where we were about to be located, we went door to door. 
we passed on flyers. Word of mouth was another big instrument. Uh, we didn't have anything to show for what we say we were going to do. So we have to really go in and talk to people uh, about our ideas, how uh, we are going to achieve our objective, and why they should trust us. Uh, by the way, we don't have to do that now, you know, because we have a record. People come to us now. Uh, but then, you know, we had to be very aggressive going out and convincing people, and that was not an easy task. Does the charter school uh, phenomenon, is it kind of like a uh, Ivy League kind of look at the, you know, the elementary, the secondary school level? I mean, are we looking at, it's not really a private school, but it still offers that kind of edge a little bit more than the public school system? You know, what it does, what it does is provide, in a sense, you can say that, because one thing about many charter schools is the smaller size. Because we are very small, uh, we know each and every child in the building uh, by name, and we also know their strength. We also know about their background, the family background, a whole lot of things. And that puts us in a very good position, you know, when it comes to addressing their needs. And as you know, many uh, traditional public schools are very large, and there is so much disconnect uh, between schools and, uh, you know, the constituents. But here, it's a smaller size. We have one board representing a family of maybe 200, uh, you know. And in a situation like this, it's likely that every family in the school has someone in the board that they know and that they can go to if they have a concern. And think about a big uh, traditional public school, a district. You know, there is one board for 30,000 students, maybe 10,000 families. And there are many families who don't know anybody on the board, you know, at the personal level. Okay. So, yes, in a way, you know, it's kind of, uh, uh, I can say, uh, an Ivy League type. Okay. But uh, we mostly look for groups that are really understaffed. You know, many charter schools, I mean, there are charter schools that uh, serve suburban uh, population, but many others serve underserved uh, groups, okay? But they provide that kind of environment, you know, where people are known, recognized, and attended to highly. What grades do you offer at the Higher Ground Academy? Kindergarten through the 12th grade. And we have about 500 students? We have about, uh, you know, it's growing. We have about 580 now. 580. And obviously it's also a very special place to teach. It is. It is. Uh, you know, uh, you see a child uh, coming from uh, a very remote East African village, a refugee, did not uh, know, did not speak English have never had uh, a background in education, and you work with him or her for two or three years, and you see them grow, it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. Uh, or you find, you, you work with an inner city kid who has not uh, succeeded in a traditional public school, and, uh, you, you know, you teach them 
uh, to read for the first time, it is really rewarding. So seeing growth in the children is a very rewarding thing for our teachers. Well, now that you have this history and this track record of success, how do you select students when you probably have more uh, applications than you do have room? Uh, you know, uh, because we are a public school, we have to do a lottery system. Uh, we take applications. We have uh, deadlines for turning in applications. All those who turn in application before the deadline, they have equal chance of getting in uh, as the other applicants in the pool. So it's based on a lottery. What advice would you give others who would like to start a charter school? That's a very good question. Uh, I would have a number of uh, advices. Uh, One is it is very important. It is very important to have people in your team who have a good understanding of education. You you can have a vision. uh, You can be committed to it. But if you don't have an understanding of education, it's very hard to achieve your objectives. Uh, Another thing is know that uh, it's a lot of work. You know, it's really a lot of work. Uh, We worked seven days. We worked uh, long hours every day uh, for uh, the first four or five years. And we still are working seven days, even though we are working a little uh, shorter days now. So it's a lot of work. And also you have to be prepared to learn uh, from your mistakes, you know, because it's an experiment. Now, every school, every charter school is an experiment. You have a different mission than other schools. You have a different way of achieving your objectives, you know, from other schools. So you are experimenting, and your experiment may not work the first time. So you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to learn from your mistakes. You have to try over and over again. And another advice is you have to be rooted in the community. You really have to be rooted in the community. There has to be a core group of people who believe in what you do. Uh, who would stick with you no matter. Uh, So first few years are going to be a challenge. Be prepared for the challenge. And if you persist, you are going to succeed. Well, it must be an exciting, creative environment for everyone. It is really, uh, it must be that. It must be exciting. And uh, otherwise you would have people uh, leaving you. And, uh, you know, we had people who left because they were not excited enough. But uh, we have been able to make it exciting for enough number of people, and that's why we survived. Uh, And again, it's the mission. It's really the purpose that keeps people excited, especially during the first few years when uh, you experience a lot of failure. You would fail uh, because you have planned for something that you didn't know, and uh, the plan uh, is very likely uh, that's going to not work. And when that happens, people who are not excited about the mission uh, would tend to go. Uh, but those who are excited about the, the mission, they are uh, committed to the mission, they would stick and uh, they would uh, follow through to the end. 
We have about a minute left, and the last, your chapter seven, what is the lesson from this? I think that would be a good way to end this interview about your book. What is the lesson from this, Samuel? The lesson from uh, this experience, the higher ground experience, is that uh, there is uh, hope uh, in the charter school movement to make charter, I mean, public education work for many of the constituents that uh, have not been served well up until this point. Uh, as you know, uh, the failure rate is very high among some groups. Uh, some groups haven't seen success in public education, and these groups are being served now by the charter school option, and uh, they are seeing success. So charter schools uh, revitalize you know, the promise of public education. And uh, that's the lesson. You know, where even though it's a lot of work, uh, it's uh, challenging, and uh, uh, there is more to be learned uh, you know, about you know, how to create excellent uh, uh, charter schools. Uh, there is a promise. There is a promise. There are some observed problems already. You know, in our school, we have seen some challenges. In other schools, uh, the, uh, you know, challenges have been uh, seen, and uh, these have to be uh, taken care of. They have to be addressed, uh, and uh, uh, it's a responsibility of uh, policymakers, uh, people involved in the charter school movement, and everyone, you know, have a role to play in this, correcting the, uh, you know, the problems, you know, that we are seeing with many of the charter schools right now. But... If that's taken care of, I think as a result of this, public education would come out a winner, become stronger than it is uh, today. Samuel, how do we get your book? Uh, right now, you can get the book uh, from iUniverse, uh, but you can go to the nearest uh, bookseller, you know, Barnes & Noble, Borders, and you can order it from them. It's not on the shelf. Uh, you have to go and order it. Uh, from any bookstore uh, near you. Well, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. That was author Dr. Samuel Yigzaw. He is the author of his book, Keeping the Promise, One Charter School's Experience. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. 
Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The President's Pianist, My Term with Truman and My Life in Music. And the author is George Manos, and George joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, George. Hello there. Well, you've had some incredibly unique experiences, a life filled with music. Before we talk about your experience being President Truman's personal pianist, I just want to talk about... uh, how this all started, your music career, your interest in music, it, uh, probably from your childhood, I imagine. From childhood and listening to my uh, uh, brothers and sisters uh, make music, I wasn't allowed to, because I was the runt of the family. I was the baby. <laughs> you were the baby. Huh? And what I used to do is I used to sneak into the music room in a big house that we had in Norfolk, Virginia, and I would, uh, I would play my sister Helen's uh, piano lesson. Uh, just by rote. In other words, I couldn't read music. I was, what, I was four or five years old then. That's and all. you would listen to her take lessons and then go in and play what yeah, she I was playing? Yeah, I behind the piano. <laughs> and then I'd go in and uh, remember what her teacher told her to oh do. Oh, my and goodness. It, and it was anything. It, it was just one of those things, you know what I mean. Call it, uh, well, call it whatever you like. Well, that's called genius. Not, well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Prodigy, or all those kinds of words, right? Prodigy, maybe. Yes, well, that's uh, remarkable. And when did you know, when when did you know that you had this special uh, gift, this special talent? You know, I really didn't know. It's just that I had fun doing it, and I, I constantly wondered, why don't you let me take lessons? You know, Bess is doing it, Helen's doing it, Andy's doing it. Why can't I? But I was, I was never given a, a, a good answer. Not that no one was mean to me, it's just I guess they felt I didn't need it, you know. Didn't need it because you did it so well? I did it so well to myself. <laughs> they, they, had no, they had no knowledge that I was doing it. Oh, really? Yeah, How did I you hide it. that from them? Well, I went in, we had a separate music room where the piano sat, and that's where I used to go and play while my mother was shopping or doing something. My dad was at work, my, uh, my sisters were at school or what have you, and... Uh, I was, as I say, I was the runt. I had the run of the house to myself a lot. And I'd go in and play when nobody else was around. At first, I was afraid that somebody would find out, you know, because I wasn't supposed to be in that room. <laughs> if you remember the old-fashioned mothers, mother used to have a locks around her waist on a chain. She'd lock doors downstairs. The living room was locked. The dining room was locked. And uh, this was typical of mothers who had big houses. So when did it happen? When were you allowed to express yourself in music openly or take lessons or whatever, you know, was available for you to help you progress? Well, this happened during the end of a uh, lesson that my sister Helen had with her piano teacher and uh, (laughs) the one I I copied from. And uh, the piano teacher didn't leave. She ended up out in the hallway or the living room talking with my mother. So I thought they were gone. I went to the piano and started playing that day's lesson, you see, probably very badly. But the, the piano teacher uh, uh, caught it, you know, and turned, turned to my mother, apparently, this is what I was told later, and told my mother he should be studying piano. 
as well as the others, but uh, it didn't make my sister feel any better. Because I was playing one of her pieces, you know, <laughs> and doing it a bit better. But today she admits it. You see. <laughs> <laughs> Tough back then, but she will go along with it. With oh, the yeah. younger brother was pretty good, huh? Well, everybody went on to something. My, my big brother, Andy, uh, didn't stick into music. He, won, he loved automobiles and became a very successful dealer uh, for 50 years. And then uh, my sister, whose piano playing I copied, turned out to be a very fine uh, journalist. She, she worked for the Old Times Herald newspaper in Washington and then went into fashion, what have you, in New York City and did very well. My other sister, the eldest one, Bess, was a very fine violinist. She and I both studied at the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. So we all went our merry way, so to speak, you know. But by the time we were in our early teens, we already knew what we wanted to do. So that, that made it easy on the parents, too. So as a teen, you enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps. Well, I was about to be drafted. Ah. At that age, if I was drafted, I'd have, I'd have been in the Korean campaign. Because ah. I was too young for the Second World War. And... Uh, I joined the Marines, and by, by chance, I, I got into the Marine Band. They were looking for a pianist, too. So that made it easy for me. I have to admit, Mr. Truman saved my life. Yes. You know, I could, I could, have, been, I could have been in the trenches in North Korea when we had that skirmish with those boys over there. So how did that happen? How, did that, uh, how were you chosen, or how did this all, how was this created, this uh, presidential pianist, personal yeah. presidential pianist? Sounds formal, but it isn't. It's just one of those things that happens. You know, according to uh, 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 Congress, only the Marine Band was permitted to play in the White House for, for uh, ceremonial occasions and other occasions. I got, I got roped into that as, as a pianist. So I was sort of already made. I was ready made for that. And uh, what happened was that one, one day I was, in the, <laughs> no sooner was in the Marine Band, just a week or two later, an order came in to my commanding officer, who was the conductor of the Marine Band then, that a pianist would be needed to accompany the president on the yacht Williamsburg for two weeks. And here I was, just fresh into the Marine Corps, no uniform yet, no nothing. And here I was being invited to <laughs> go on a two-week cruise on the presidential yacht. And I thought, well, isn't this very nice of our commander-in-chief? <laughs> That's yeah. a hard duty, is the yeah. In fact, no one, no one in the offices knew what to do with me because <laughs> what kind of clothes should I wear? What uniform should I take? Uh, what's what's the protocol? What nothing? Absolutely, knew absolutely nothing. I don't know if, it, if I mentioned it in the book. I was stopped at the gate at the U.S. Navy Yard because I was in improper dress, so to speak, and uh, with, with a lot of telephone calls and suspicions and what have you. They finally let me through. But then again, that, that started a whole series of uh, backflips to get on board the ship. No one taught me what's the protocol of boarding a ship. Because, <laughs> you know, Marine Corps, same as Navy, you know. You have to ask permission by the, the officer of the deck. I went, well, I didn't know all this nonsense. So anyway, all, all this was interesting. Scary, but interesting. Well, that two weeks must have went well because you had a four-year term with the president. I did. I did. And he, uh, it was so funny because at the end of the term, you know, we both, we had a chat one day and uh, on my way out, because I was going to leave in 52 in, in the month of July, and he had to go on to become the, the lame duck, so to speak, until January came. 
of the following year. All he said to me is, okay, George, we're both out of a job. See you around. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. So it was like it was like a uh, a long dream, you know. It was it was nothing I really I appreciated it, but I, I wasn't I wasn't celebrated for it. And I made up my mind earlier that I wouldn't I wouldn't tell out of school, you know, because that's just what a lot of newspapers and magazines would want at that time. What what did you hear? What did you see? Right. And I decided I'm never going to say anything pejorative around that gentleman because he was. One of the finest gentlemen I had ever met in my life. He was as kind to me as my father would have been, and considerate. So he was your president, but he became your friend. Oh, he was a lovely friend. At that, and even when he went back to independence, he would still come back to Washington, you know, on a commercial flight, <laughs> and uh, go up to Congress. He was still the titular head of the Democratic Party. But when he came, he, he stayed uh, at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington. And he or one of his assistants would call me and said, the boss is in town. Come on down. <laughs> so I'd go down around 10 or 11 in the morning, have a shot of scotch. Of course, I drank it out of uh, what a good deference to him because he always had a shot in the morning. He wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a drinker. But he, he learned at an early age that just a shot of whiskey in the morning got the body going. And God knows I tried it. I got my body going. I almost fell over. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't used to doing that. Uh, so I didn't fall into the many U.S. Marine Corps habits that a lot of the fellows do. But uh, that's well, the way you could, was. You could write a whole book, I'm sure, just about your experiences with President Truman. Well, sure. Uh, there's lots to say. But I often wonder, you know, what good would it do? Who's going to want to read this nonsense? You know, I experienced it. I had a marvelous time. But, uh, well, you never know who's going to, uh, you know, take, take a shine to what you're saying. How often did you play for him? Well, whenever he wanted. Uh, sometimes we would get, uh, there would be two or three of us, and we would get, get calls every week to go to Zinn Blair House because there was no White House, and he gutted it. He was rebuilding it from the sub-basement up to the attic. And uh, we, we'd, two or three of us would go and play for various functions. And sometimes he'd ask for me alone. I'd go there by myself and play. You see, the Blair House was very small. He couldn't do anything big there. So he couldn't use an orchestra that we had, a White House orchestra. He couldn't use that. In other words, in his drawing room, he'd have receptions maybe for 20 people, 25 at the most. So Eisenhower comes in, and you go out, and you're out of a job. I'm out of a job. So what did you do? He had a pretty good resume, I guess. Yeah, where the Marine Corps was really kind to me is that I never had to live in barracks or anywhere. I lived at home. And if I, I, I would take a taxi, I didn't have a car, didn't have the money to buy a car. I would get public transportation and I'd go down the Marine Barracks where I'd spend the day at rehearsal with the band and may do this and do that. And uh, the Marine Corps was very good to me. They let me continue my studies at the Peabody Conservatory. So if there was nothing else to do that day, I'd get over to Union Station and take a train to Baltimore. In those days, it only cost a dollar and one penny, one way. Two dollars and two cents round trip to go to uh, Baltimore by train. And I'd go there and continue with a lot of the great teachers that I knew, two mentors in particular who were still there, thank goodness, while I was in the Marine Corps and while I was out of it. So I, I had a great time, really. And then from there, I... 
I performed whenever I could as a pianist, as an accompanist, as a choral director. I did all kinds of things. Concert pianist and oh, concert yes. conductor. That's right. And you had a uh, quite a career with uh, the America's foremost gallery. What? What? Uh, in my the National mind? Gallery of Art. The National Gallery of Art. Yeah, that the was Pits- a symphony. The Pittsburgh Mellons built that for the United States, and it's quite quite a building, quite an institution. And they had their own symphony orchestra. That you, my, my predecessor, Richard Bales, started. And you probably performed with some very famous singers and conductors. Yeah, I got to, while I, while I was there, I got to work with, oh, a very exciting uh, uh, artist, uh, Todd Duncan, who was the fellow that George Gershwin selected to do the premiere performance of his Porgy and Bess when they premiered it in New York. And uh, he made the first recordings with it. But he was he was a great singer and a great artist, not only for doing Gershwin and that kind of thing. Todd Duncan was a serious concert singer. I mean, we we did works of of, of Bach, we did works of uh, Schubert, and the French School, Debussy, Ravel, and what have you. This was very exciting. Then at the same time, I I ran into a fellow Greek, uh, Nikolaidis. She was from. Greece from the island of uh, Sappho, and she was with the Metropolitan Opera. And we performed, oh, tons of recitals all over the country. So I had had great experience with her, too, plus others. You were there for 18 years. Yeah. And the four years in the Blair House, that gave me 22 years in government, because the uh, National Gallery was considered government. It was run by the government. Well, when when uh, President Truman wanted you to play, you say that sometimes he would come right in and sit down with you while you played. Oh, yeah. When we were alone, sometimes I'd have, uh, I'd have rolled over a small piano outside the uh, presidential office, which overlooked Pennsylvania Avenue. Don't forget, he was in Blair House this time Right. when I was with him. And uh, I could see him sitting at the desk, or he could see me sitting at the, on the bench at the, at the piano. There were a few times when he'd wonder he'd he'd get up and come over and sit down, look and see what I was doing. <laughs> and sometimes it was something that he had studied. You know, he had studied serious piano. He wasn't like Nixon, who just piddled around the keyboard. But Truman uh, uh, approached the piano in a very serious vein. That's why the, the big the big funny story came out when he met uh, the famous uh, Paderewski, the pianist, who was at one time also the premier of Poland. And uh, if you know, I don't know, Paderewski wrote a famous minuet for the piano. And it had a strange mordant or turn in the piece that came periodically every few bars. And Truman used to say, well, I, I know how to play that turn. He says, I asked the maestro, and he taught me how to do it. Said, did he do it for you? I says, no, my teacher did it for me. I didn't want to say anything, but man, Mr. Truman, I'm not. I'm too young to have known Paderewski. <laughs> I know I'm out of the history books and out of his composition. But anyway, he says, now that makes three of us who know how to play it correctly. Would you say Truman was just down-to-earth kind of a guy? Oh, yes. He, he could easily be Farmer Brown. Farmer Brown, huh? Yeah. But something that people don't know about this man is that when he retired from the presidency, he could easily have become a full professor in any university teaching history. 
All you had to do is mention mention a date and a country, and he'll start spouting off its history. He was a genius. He read incessantly all his life, and especially books on history. And he could sit and discuss it with you, or with any historian or any other professor, full time. Well, fascinating career, George, and uh, we appreciate you sharing this with us, uh, this little insight into your book. Tell us how to get your book. Oh, good Lord. Uh, a few friends of mine got it by uh, calling uh, Amazon. Probably all the online bookstores have it. Maybe by now. I really don't know. Okay. Only I think only iUniverse could tell us. Right. Who has it, you know. But people could ask for it, and I'm sure they could order it. Oh, they can order it, yeah. Sure. In my experience, those, the big bookstores can order anything, as long as you know who the publisher is. Right. And what have you. Well, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Well, I'm very happy to do so. Thank you for having me. That was George Manos. He is the author of his book, The President's Pianist, My Term with Truman and My Life in Music. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.